Welcome to the city. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the, the pastors here. We're so glad you made it. And um, yeah, like Mark said, coming off a of family camp week is, is always a little bit interesting. Uh, you know, so a lot of us are, are on the struggle bus just a little bit. And, uh, but it, it was fun. And it's awesome to see, you know, you go to the, get away to these family camps. You get to see people that maybe you don't see on a, on a normal basis at church. We have a couple different services. So, but it's, it's cool to see, you know, kind of a, a church become a family and to, to kind of develop those relationships. And, and a lot happened. We had a lot of fun. We, we worshiped together. We played together. This happened. Uh, that was our opening ceremony of the family Olympics, um, right before we got hailed on and had to move inside. Uh, and this was, I didn't dress up. This is just how I dress when I do awesome things, right? In family Olympics, but it, it was, it was fun. And as you can tell from the picture, summer's here. And I know from my Facebook feed that every single one of my Facebook friends had some, uh, had a senior that graduated from high school. And so congratulations to you and your, your senior. Um, there's a card in the mail full of cash for you coming for me. So uh, congratulations. Uh, we've been in Luke, you know, we've been in Luke for a long time and we are up to chapter 19. And, you know, just in thinking about this verse by verse teaching, we know we, we kind of preach this to you all the time. And, and Listen, I'm the first to admit, I'm kind of preaching to the choir here. I know that, that you get it, but it, I was just reminded of this again. A couple weeks ago, I was, we were sitting with our uh, city group, and I was hearing people talk about <clears throat> how much they love our, our student ministry and our kids' ministry, not because their kids get entertained or whatever, but because they, they are learning Scripture. And uh, all these couples are a little bit younger than my wife and I. They have younger kids. And it just dawned on me all again that it's, it's so important to know what scripture says, not just for us, it is important for us, but also for our kids, you know, between, uh, there's a lot of good churches in this city, but what I told them that night was, you know, between the city seven and table talk and just everything they're, they're learning right now, take, take it from someone that has older kids. This is where you want your kids to go. You, you want your kids developing the kind of faith that is set up to, to give them the best shot at withstanding literally everything else in their life that's trying to pull them away. And so, so let, let, let that be an encouragement to you. But, but even for me, growing up in the church, being in ministry for 20 plus years, it's like in the past year or two, my faith has grown more than it has probably in the, the previous 18 years combined just as I've studied scripture like I never have before, and it's creating one of these things where the more I dive into it, the more I learn, the more I apply, the more I want, you know, the more I crave it. And, and it really has set my faith on fire. And so my prayer is that you would experience the same thing if your heart would just be open to it. Luke chapter 19, we've now, uh, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's been on his way to Jerusalem now for 10 chapters. It's been a long, long journey, but this is kind of an exciting part of the story because this is the end of that journey. This is the last story from Jesus, the last parable before the start of Passion Week. So, so he has one, one more week to live, and that's it. They're, they're almost to Jerusalem. This is his final week on earth. And so th this is kind of an important time in his life and ministry. And this is a little bit of, I figured out kind of, um, I thought this was interesting. I want to share it with you. 
In the Gospels, the four Gospels, there are four chapters that cover the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Then there are 85 chapters that deal with the last three and a half years, right? His, his ministry on earth. And 29 of those chapters cover the last week of his life. So, so this is crunch time. This is a big deal. If you were at the very end of your life, you knew you had a week left to live, you probably wouldn't waste your words, would you? You would say the most important things to the most important people in your life. And I feel like if we know, we know now, the disciples didn't know at this time, we know it's coming towards the end. We should be hanging on Jesus every single word. And he could have told them anything. You know, he, he could have told them, because again, he's been predicting his death, but he, they're not really getting it. They still think he's going to Jerusalem to become an earthly king. He could have told them, listen, again, I'm gonna die, but don't freak out, right? Keep the faith, don't lose heart. Give them a hang in there cat poster or something. Make sure you love yourself, stay true to yourself, make sure you're happy. You know, the most important thing in life is to love yourself. He didn't say any of that. In fact, he, he said quite the opposite. But of all he could have said, he's, he, he gave this, this one parable. And since we know now, again, Jesus is God and he is perfect in every way. He has infinite wisdom. He knows everything there is to know about everything. We should probably in this time, in this last parable, lean in and pay attention. So if you have your Bibles, chapter 19 of Luke, We'll start in uh, verse 11. I asked my buddy Zane to come read the scripture for us today. So if you guys would stand just in the honor of reading of God's word. Good morning, City Fam. If we haven't met yet, my name is Zane Graham. I volunteer on First Impressions team and also attend the Mitchell City Group. So let's read Luke 19, 11 through 27. The crowd was listening to everything Jesus said. And because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. He said, a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, he called together 10 of his servants and divided among them 10 pounds of silver, saying, invest this for me while I am gone. But his people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we do not want him to be our king. After he was crowned king, he returned and called in the servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what their profits were. The first servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made ten times the original amount. Well done, the king exclaimed. You are a good servant. You have been faithful with the little I entrusted to you, so you will be governor of ten cities as your reward. The next servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made five times the original amount. Well done, the king said. You will be governor over five cities. But the third servant brought back only the original amount of money and said, Master, I hid your money and kept it safe. I was afraid because you're a hard man to deal with, taking what isn't yours and harvesting crops you didn't plant. You wicked servant, the king roared. Your own words condemn you. If you knew that I'm a hard man who takes what isn't mine and harvests crops I didn't plant, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then, turning to the other standing nearby, the king ordered, Take the money from this servant and give it to the one who has ten pounds. But master, they said, he already has ten pounds. Yes, the king replied, 
And to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. And as for these enemies of mine who didn't want me to be their king, bring them in and execute them right here in front of me. Thank you. You guys can have a seat. I, lo- I love this, the first couple of verses there, the first verse, when Luke basically gives you the point of the story before he tells you. He says, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. He, he tells them the point before he starts. Guys, don't you wish your wife or girlfriend would do the same thing? Give you the point up front, you know, so you don't have to spend 45 minutes trying to figure out what it is. Maybe just me. Okay. Um, And if I'm in trouble, lead with that. I want to know that first, right? So I can. He says the point of the parable is to correct their wrong thinking. Remember, they're going to Jerusalem expecting a coronation, that Jesus is going to set up this this earthly kingdom. It's about to start. That's the reason they're, they're, they're heading there. And they know they're going to kind of have a seat at the head table. The region was under Roman rule in many, many people in those days, according to their, their interpretation of Scripture and the, the coming Messiah. They assumed Jesus was coming to overthrow that government, set up his own kingdom, and then all of them would be by his side, kind of ruling by his side and, and probably be rulers over different provinces or regions. But we know now what they didn't know. He was going to die. He, he, he came once. They killed him. He's going to heaven after he was resurrected, and he's going to return again. And the return is when this coronation is going to happen. So, so he's, this is kind of the immediate thing that he's kind of correcting. But, but there's, there's a lot for us too, right? The disciples and his followers didn't see what we see now, but there's a lot for us to learn too. In fact, Jesus is giving every single one of us as believers a heads up, a little bit of a, a warning, In fact, if we're not clear on the meaning of of this parable, we might not be ready to face him when he returns. And here's the coolest part of all of it. Like, there's no guesswork involved for us. Like, he tells us through this parable exactly what we're supposed to be doing. He went away. He's coming back. So what what do we do in the meantime? Well, he tells us exactly. We, we don't have to wonder about the meaning of life or why we're here or what his will for our lives are. Like he tells us explicitly there's no, there's no guessing and he uses this parable to do it. It's the parable of the 10 servants. Some uh, translations say the parable of 10 uh, minas. This is different than the parable of the talents. It's a different uh, subject matter and audience altogether. But Jesus, we know, told a lot of, of parables uh, in, in his teaching. And he did this for a very specific reason. Because he's trying to teach them these spiritual things about God and about God's kingdom and how things are about to happen and work. And, and they couldn't understand it. So he would marry that spiritual principle to kind of a cultural experience that, that they would all grasp and, and understand, right? So so trying to help them along in that way. We miss the point of the parables a lot. We get the spiritual side sometimes, but we don't really understand the cultural side. These people would absolutely know exactly what Jesus was talking about when he would give these kinds of parables. And this one in particular, that is very, very true uh, about this one. It's special. Number one, it's the only, uh, Luke is the only one that tells about this particular parable that Jesus taught. But also, this is the only parable we know 
that actually described a, a, a historical event, something that happened in their lifetime that they remembered. All right, so hang with me here, a little, little history lesson. You know, th- this parable talks about a nobleman that was called away to this distant em- empire so that he could become king, be crowned king, and he was going to return to rule. Again, the region's under Roman rule. Um, no one could rule unless they received permission from, from Caesar at that time. Okay, so we back up 4 BC, so before Jesus, 4 BC, this region was under uh, the rule of Herod the Great, but he died in 4 BC. He gave three of his sons the kingdom. He split it up between them. You had Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, and Herod Archelaus. Now, Herod Archelaus was the the one that uh, got assigned to Judea. Okay, so They all three had to go before Caesar to to receive this kingdom, just like the nobleman went, right, to be crowned king. But Archelaus was a bad, bad, bad person. (laughs) Uh, In fact, to intimidate the Jews who he was trying to rule over, he had 3,000 of them killed. So, So needless to say, the Jews didn't like this guy. And so what did they do? They sent a delegation to Caesar, just like the parable, to say, listen, we don't like this guy. We don't want him to be our king. So as kind of a, a way to, to kind of appease both sides, Caesar lets him rule over them but doesn't call him king, which accomplishes nothing, right? He takes control. It's a disaster. It falls apart quickly. And as a result, <clears throat> Caesar starts replacing him with a series of governors, okay? The fifth of these governors is Pilate. Pilate, the one that Jesus, in a matter of a week, is going to be standing before. As the crowds yell to him, give us Barabbas, the murderer, in exchange for Jesus. And they yell, crucify him, crucify him. As they demand Pilate, sentence him to death. So, so this isn't just a cool story, right? This isn't a, a fairy tale. This is a great reminder that this is history. These are historical events, things that actually happen. And again, Jesus' audience would have drawn these parallels instantly and known exactly what he's talking about. You, you have the historical side that he's referencing, but then you also have the kingdom of God side. So we're going to kind of walk through and look at parallels here and what it has to say to us. So you have the nobleman going to get crowned, left 10 servants with silver. They all got one pound apiece. Uh, and then there were some that, that hated him, right? Didn't want him to be king. So obviously the nobleman is Jesus, right? Then you have three groups of people. You, you have two different kinds of servants. You have the first two servants that were faithful. Then you have that third one that hid the money, didn't do anything with it, that got kind of uh, scolded by the, the nobleman. Then you had the third group, those that hated him, that rejected him, refused to be subject to his, his kingship. So what I want you to see, he gives each one a pound of uh, silver. This is three months wages. And he says to them, invest this while I'm gone. Like he gave them this for a a specific purpose. Invest this for me. The the ESV says, engage in business. It's not just hang on to this for a while. He he gave them explicit instructions to do something with it. The, the, The term he used in the original Greek is this, is your Greek word of the day. Can anybody pronounce it for me? <laughs> it's proctuamai. I practice that a lot. Proctuamai. That's the only time in the New Testament that word is used. And you can kind of see 
pragma is, is kind of the, the, the root word. This is where we get our word pragmatic. He's telling them literally do business, like do something with this, make something happen, be profitable. They, they were expected to be productive with what he gave them. So in doing so, they would show their love and respect for this, this master, right, this nobleman. They, they would show that they really did believe he was coming back, right, to see what they did with what he gave them. And in verse 15, it says, after he was crowned king, he returned and called in the servants. So he returned. When he returned, this is pointing to Christ's second coming when he's about to call everyone to account. He's going to ask, just like the nobleman did, what have you been up to while I was away? What have you done? So, so this is kind of our first application here as, as believers, that there is a call from Jesus to, to live a life that honors him. Because eventually, one day, he's going to hold people accountable for their actions when he returns. The first servant made 10 times the money, got 10 cities. Second servant made five times the money, got five cities. And he tells both of them, well done, you are a good servant. What does that sound like? It kind of reminds me of well done, well done, good and faithful servant, right? They, they, they were rewarded, they, 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 they did well, so the nobleman gave them even more. It kind of seems like, right, this may not be talking about a heaven or hell thing, but they were rewarded according to what they did when, they, when he was away. They, they were rewarded differently, different levels of reward for different kinds of servants. Interesting. Then you have the third one. The third servant. I don't know what happened to the other seven. There were 10. He talks about two and then the third, right? But the third one's different. He, he seems a little bit cocky. He's, he's different than the first two. Actually, the original language, the ESV tells us this. He, he, he says, not the third one came, but he says, then another servant came. And this word for another is heteros. It means a different kind. It's, it's not alas, which would mean another of the same kind of servant came. He's literally telling us this third servant is different than the other two. He, he's in a different category altogether. The third servant brought back only the original amount and said, Master, I hid your money, kept it safe. I was afraid. You're a hard man to deal with. You take what isn't yours. You harvest crops you didn't plant. So he, he tries to start making these excuses, right? Like trying to convince this nobleman, like I, I did the smart thing, right? I didn't, I didn't put it at risk like these other people. I, I hid it. And then he kind of insults the nobleman, right? Passing blame. What does he say? It says that the king, who's not a nobleman anymore, he's a king, he's returned. He is the king. He roars at the servant. You wicked servant, your own words condemn you. Then he tells them, take the money from this servant and give it to the one that has 10 pounds. It kind of sounds like the one that wasn't faithful lost what he had been given. And it was given to the one that had the most. To me, it kind of sounds like when Jesus said, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. So you see, those that fail to do anything with what God has entrusted to them, the resources, talents, opportunities, will fall under at least his displeasure, if not his, his judgment. 
In verse 27, then you had the enemies. This is, these are the ones that didn't want him to be king. As for the enemies of mine who didn't want me to be their king, bring them in and execute them right here in front of me. Whoa. Seems harsh. So first you have the one that he didn't squander the, the pound of silver he got, the third servant, right? But he didn't do what the, the nobleman wanted. So it was taken from him and given to the one ten. That doesn't seem very fair. Then the ones that hated him were all executed. So it should be a good reminder to us that when it comes to judgment and the standards of judgment and reward, that gets set by the judge. He's the one that gets to decide that. What, what the subjects, subjects think about it doesn't mean a whole lot. He's the one that ultimately gets to decide. So, so again, let's kind of walk through these parallels again and then we'll get to some takeaways. You have the nobleman give silver as he leaves. They all get the same amount. The nobleman's Jesus. He gives us all the same gifts. Everyone, the Holy Spirit, the Great Commission, the gospel, his word. Then you have servants who got a return. They got rewarded. Those who didn't, didn't. Then you had those who hated the king that were executed. Whereas we know those who hate or reject Jesus eventually face an eternal punishment, an eternal death. So for us, hopefully the, the lesson here is starting to come into focus, right? There will be rewards for Christ followers that are faithful. There will be rejection for those followers that are a different kind, right? The false followers. Then there's going to be retribution for his enemies. The, the, the faithful followers are going to have a reward and, and graces and these privileges, some kind of eternal reward based on what they did on earth. The false followers, the, these fakers, they're, they're going to be unmasked to, sh to be shown for what they, they truly are. Then you have his enemies that, that are going to be rejected. And they will be sentenced to an eternal death. So, so here's what we got to understand. Every single person in this room, every single one of us falls into one of those three categories. The faithful, the faker, or the hater. Which one are you? Which one are you? Not by your own standards, not by your own thoughts about what a Christian should look like or what you think God is looking for, whatever. Biblically speaking, you knowing your relationship with Jesus and the state that it's in, would he look at your life and call you faithful or something else? I think we want to be in the faithful category because the faithful will be rewarded. The faithful will be rewarded. There is an eternal prize. Like not everyone gets the same reward. This, again, this is where we're talking about not a heaven or hell thing. We're talking about for believers. It seems to me, Jesus is pretty clear that there are going to be different rewards for different levels of faithfulness. Right? Not everyone gets the same reward. This isn't T-ball where everyone gets the same participation trophy. We, we are living, supposed to be living for an eternal reward, treasures in heaven. We're not living for the now. We're living for something greater in the future. 
Jesus is saying, you know, to all of us, whatever you do, whatever you say, whatever you give, whatever you do in my name, it's not for nothing. Even if it causes you to suffer, you will be rewarded. This has been a theme in his teaching in these last few chapters. It's not just about today. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 talks about this, running for a prize. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. This, in this day in Corinth, they had these athletic games, much like uh, the Olympics that we know of today. A little bit different, a little smaller scale, but they would compete for this wreath, this crown made of leaves or whatever, that, that's what the victor would get. So, so these people in Corinth would know exactly what he's referencing here. He's talking about running to win the prize. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Run with purpose in every step. How many of you guys like to run? Hands. Bunch of sickos. What's wrong with you? How many of you guys have ever trained for or ran like a marathon, half marathon? Actually done the, some of you, yeah. How many of you guys have ever run before? Yeah, right, like me, maybe just to the bathroom or whatever, right? But you run? Think about the difference here. The difference between like someone who's just kind of a cat, like maybe, maybe you get on a treadmill every once in a while, like me and you walk more than you run or whatever. Then you, you have somebody training for a marathon or half. Now think about somebody training for the Olympics. Like think about the, the different levels of discipline and, and life. like these are different people. Each of these have different lifestyles, different goals, different ways of training. And you take that kind of to, to the spiritual side. Like, what are you working towards? What are you living for? Are you living your life like you're trying to win an eternal prize? Or are you living for your glory or his? Are you hoping for just some kind of participation trophy? Because listen, this is the harsh reality for all of us. The end is coming. Whether we die or Christ returns, it's inevitable. The end is coming. And when it does, every single material thing that you and I have in this world will burn. It'll be gone. Everything you've ever done will be, be tested and sifted like wheat. Scripture tells us. Every earthly treasure or possession, all the money, the power, the trophies, what your kids' achievements or sports or whatever else, it'll all blown away like chaff. And when that day comes for you, what will be left? Scripture tells us it's the eternal things. That's all that's going to remain. What will be left when your life is Sifted, will you be one of the faithful? The faithful will be rewarded, but the faker will be judged. The faker will be judged. 
the faker. This is the third servant, the false follower. Now, this is a scary category. It's kind of no man's land. In fact, a lot of the, the scholars don't really even agree. Is this guy saved or is he not? On one hand, he's called a servant. He gets the gift that everyone else gets, right? He's not really listed and he was also included in all the executions. It doesn't explicitly say that, but at the same time, Jesus calls him wicked. He tells him that you stand condemned. Some think that the, he's just one of those that, that, that just barely sneaks in, right? Just barely gets into heaven. Just by the skin of his teeth, like, like passing a class with a D minus, you know, like let's see how close we can get to the edge without actually falling off the cliff. That's, that's this guy. Others think he's some kind of pretend follower who, who is kind of associated with the community of Jesus, but has never really put their faith in him. Or, or they, they seem like they're members of the faith community. They may attend church. You know, they may even think they're a Christian but they've never walked through that door of faith and they will end up on the outside. Either way, this is not a category you want to be in. And unfortunately, I think this is one of the biggest categories of, of people alive in our culture today in, in, in America. People that honor them with their lips, their hearts are far from him. <laughs> And my question, do you really want to walk that line? Do you really want to, to literally play with fire? This, this is today's typical cultural Christian, just playing games, pretending on the weekend or pretending around certain groups of friends and then being someone else the rest of the time. And my question is, is, where is your fear of a holy and righteous God? A.W. Tozer says, nothing twists and deforms the soul more than a low or unworthy conception of God. What is your conception? Of God. See, I think if, if we all had an accurate picture of just how holy and righteous our God is and powerful, I kind of think, as in the last day, every knee would bow. I think every tongue would confess Jesus is Lord, like, like will eventually happen. I think every single life would, would pay a tribute to him for his glory. Every heart would be completely sold out to him. But the problem is you, you can't outgrow your concept of God, like how big is your God? He's bigger than you think. He's more holy than you think. He's more righteous and just than you think. The faker will be judged and the hater will be destroyed. This one's a little more clear cut. There's not, there's not a lot of room for uncertainty here. Jesus himself has said over and over, you're either with me or you're against me. 
To not acknowledge me is to deny me. Like there is no neutrality. There's no fence riding. Those who reject Jesus, whether it's outright and blatant or just by simply not acknowledging him and surrendering to him, they will suffer the harshest judgment from the king. This is that group of haters that didn't want, to be, didn't want this guy to be their king. He had them executed. To not accept him is to, to reject him. And listen, this was most of the crowd that was following Jesus. They followed him everywhere. They oohed and aahed at all the miracles. Man, how great is this guy, right? They showed up for the food. They brought their sick to him to, to be healed or whatever. They would be the ones in just a day or two to line the streets as Jesus entered Jerusalem, laying down the palm branches and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And they would be the same ones that would stand before Pilate and say, crucify him. We have a lot of ease in our day too. Rejecting God, rejecting faith. They don't want to be subject to anyone other than themselves. See, as our culture grows more and more independent from God, they claim they're not subjects. They, they try to create God in their image, in their form, to, to fit their expectations, to fit their ideologies or convictions or politics. And they argue that your destiny, my destiny, it's no one else's business. But like the, the third guy, they, they don't really have a healthy fear of their master, of their king, of their judge. They don't see him as king. They don't, they don't want a king. But here's the, the great irony of any kingdom, which we might miss living where we live. Whether or not a subject wants to be a subject does not matter. The king is still your king. And to be a subject that doesn't accept a king is a dangerous thing. A theologian, Daryl Bach, says it this way. He says, one group remains to be dealt with, the rejectors. They will be slain. Their rejection is total. The parable follows the reality of ancient politics. Refusing the rule of the one in power often meant paying with one's life. Here is the judgment of God. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a judging and rejected God. See, it seems, might seem extreme. See, see, the problem is we don't think our sin is that bad. We, we undervalue our sin. We undervalue a righteous and just God. If you're one that thinks, maybe you're not sure which category you're in, maybe there's a chance, even a chance, that you are in this third group. Let me tell you, God isn't just just and just righteous and just holy. He's also loving and forgiving and gracious. And the very fact that we are alive and breathing and still have a chance on this earth to turn to him is a testimony to his grace and patience with us. And I'm imploring, Jesus is, is 
is calling out to you. He is chasing after you. Think about how amazing it is that the the creator of the universe, the all-powerful, righteous, holy God, wants a relationship with you personally. Not not some distant thing to worship, but, but a personal, daily, intimate relationship. That's what he wants with you. If you'll just surrender to him, bow your knee to the king. Acknowledge his kingship in your life. This isn't just checking a box, right, or or praying some kind of magic prayer that like, all right, one admission into heaven, right? We're talking about making Jesus Lord of your life, living for him, it changing the way you live and the way you think, starting a relationship. And you do that by simply placing your faith in Jesus, that you realize that you're sinful and that God isn't. His standard is perfection. You fall short. I fall short. The only way to have a relationship with God, the only way to be considered faithful in the end and to spend eternity with him in heaven is to put your faith in Jesus, what he did for you on the cross where scripture tells us that he literally became sin and shame. Not just everyone's, but yours. He wore it. He became it. And he died for it. To pay your fine so that you might have the opportunity just to respond to that that gift that God is offering you right now, to to turn to him. Stop living for yourself, stop going your own direction, but but to live for him. Don't waste another day of your life. Because in the end, we are all accountable for the in-between, all of us. We're all accountable. We're living right now between verse 14 and verse 15. Verse 14, when the nobleman went away, and verse 15, when the king returned. We're all in that gap. What are you doing with that space? Every one of us is accountable to Jesus in one way or another. Those who belong to him, right, we're responsible for a ministry of service. Those who reject him are accountable for not recognizing who he is. This is, again, is not talking about the great white throne of judgment yet. Actually, this parable talks about both, the the throne of judgment, but also the the Bama seat. Do you remember in chapter 12, this is months ago, Clayton talked about the the Bama seat where believers would stand before Jesus to give an account of their life. that's, That's the main thrust of this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul talks about it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. See, every believer, there's coming a day where we will all stand before Jesus to give an account for what we have done while he was away with the gift that he entrusted us. The judgment seat of Christ might be compared to a commencement ceremony. At graduation, there's some measure of disappointment and remorse that you didn't do better or work harder or get better grades. However, at such an event, the overwhelming emotion is joy, right? Not not remorse. The graduates don't leave the auditorium weeping because they didn't get better grades, but they're thankful that they have graduated and they're grateful for what they did achieve. To overdo the sorrow aspect of the judgment seat of Christ is to make heaven hell. But to underdo the sorrow aspect is to make faithfulness inconsequential. So, so what it's saying here, we will all stand like we're, we're going to heaven, right? You're a Christ follower, you made it. 
Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, but there still comes a day where we stand before Jesus himself and we have to give an account for what we did here on, on earth. And there's gonna be a certain amount of either reward or, or sorrow happening there. In God's kingdom, there is a law of stewardship because we have been entrusted with so much. Now, you, you hear stewardship and you think maybe finances or time or energy, or whatever, and that, that's all true, but there's so much more than that because just like the 10 servants, they all got one pound of silver. They all got the same thing. We all got the same thing too. We all got Jesus and the gospel and the Great Commission, and the Holy Spirit, all these things, we, we've all got the same thing. And, and we need, like Clayton encouraged us months ago, to live like we're gonna be held accountable for those things. What did you do with that? Have you been a good steward? We've been given the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself said before all of his followers, before he ascended to heaven, he said, it's better that I go so that, why? So the Holy Spirit could come. And as believers, we have his spirit in us to lead us and guide us and counsel us. He's given us a spiritual gift. You have several spiritual gifts that God has given you to serve his body. And just like Paul, you know, encouraged Timothy, like take that gift and fan it into flame. Do you even know what your spiritual gifts are? And are you using those in his body? Are you using those in the service of Jesus and, and, and the gospel. We've been given God's word, the literal thoughts of God, a roadmap for life, a life that leads to, to fulfillment and joy and peace. Every answer we could ever need. We've been given the gospel of Jesus, that he came, he died. He, he, he gave us a way to be made right with him, to be saved. He loved us that much, he laid it. That is a, a gift from God. And then Jesus said, what do you do with this gift? He gave us the great commission where, where he gathered up everyone and said, listen, you, you have this good news, now go. Go and share it. Teach others what, what I've taught you. Like teach them to obey, baptize them. We as believers should be living like we're gonna give an account for, for, for these things, not for your stuff. Your, your earthly achievements and all the stuff that, that's absolutely meaningless does not matter. It should be our privilege as Christ followers to multiply what God has given us, to be a faithful servant. Ultimately, to, to, to bring people, like to, to, to be his light in the darkness, right? To bring people to him by the way we live our lives and by the way we steward these Resources. The most selfish thing you can do as a believer is to be content to go to heaven alone. Who, who's our example as Christ followers? Our example is the very first ones, right? What did the very first believers do with their gift, the gospel, the, the command to go and tell? Well, there were 12 apostles, but then we know in the upper room there were 120. Then in Acts 2, 3,000 were added. Then in Acts 4, 5,000 were added. And then later on, all the apostles, they're arrested, they're in prison. They, this judge finally addresses them. He says, listen, we gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name, in Jesus' name. And he says, instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him. That is our example. 
A faithful follower honors him with their life. That's what Paul says in Romans 12 is our, our spiritual act of worship, worshiping God is to lay ourselves down for him, to, 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 to literally give our lives over to him. That's a holy and acceptable offering to him, it says. And then if you do that, you'll know what his will is for your life. You'll, you'll be following Jesus, walking with him day by day by day. That, that is the roadmap. That is the plan. That is his will for your life, to live for him, to go where he says to go, to say what he says to say. In our lives as believers, just like the third servant was a different kind from the other two, our lives as believers should look different than everyone else's. Does yours. Are you caring about the right things? Are you living for him? Are you shining his light everywhere we go? What are you living for? See, the answer will determine what you hear from Jesus on that final day when we all stand before him. Will he say, well done? Or will he say, what have you done? Would you bow your heads as we pray and close? And I just want to encourage you in this moment to be willing to kind of take a peek under the hood, right? Like to, to address, some, is there something off? Is there something broken? Is there something in you that needs attention? Is there something you've been hold, holding on to or holding back from? Like Matt talked about last week, just our willingness to take risks, right? To step out in faith. Maybe God's calling you to something more and you've resisted it. You don't want to give something up or give friends up or maybe just fear is keeping you from being obedient, whatever it is. Maybe you're in that faker category where you've you just been playing a game. Maybe God's just stirring your heart to step up, to, to live for him, to be what you say that you are. God, we, we thank you, you love us so much. And we pray that we would be your light in the darkness. What, I pray that we'd have the courage in these moments. Whatever you're leading us to do, God, help us to not just intellectually grasp something or agree with something, but to change. God, only you, only your Holy Spirit can change our hearts. And we're asking you in this moment to do that. Is there anything in us, God, like, like David said, search me and know me in the, the innermost place. Point out anything in you that isn't pleasing to you. I pray that we would all be willing to take that posture before you. Like, what is, what is it, God? Put your finger on it and, and weed it out of my life. God, help me to take a step towards you, towards living for you. I, God, I wanna be a good, faithful servant. So I pray that my activities, my actions, my attitudes, my, my habits would line up with that belief and that I would live for you. I would be a light in the darkness. I would run the race with purpose in every single step because I know I'm not living for some kind of earthly reward that will be gone in the end. God, I wanna live for eternity. I wanna live for what matters. I wanna live for you. God, do a miracle in our hearts. In your name, amen.